Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan and I will be your host. Today we're here in Bern and have a chat with serial entrepreneur Michael Friedrich. Michael studied at the EPFL in Lausanne and already created two successful exits. Today we'll talk about how he started his first company as an underage teenager and also won a fight against the big corporate company Swisscom when doing so. Of course, we talk about his second venture that he sold for more than 12 million Swiss francs. And we also talk about his current uh, project, his current startup, and all about his plans and about a potential future M&A deal or an IPO. Michael is a very inspiring entrepreneur, very driven and passionate about doing what he's actually doing. And I think there are many stories that we can cover and learn from him. So let's get this episode started. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SBB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at sbbstartup.com. Michael, a very warm welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. Thank you for your time and it's great to have you here today. Thanks, I'm excited. I would like to start with the first question right away. You created two successful exits, uh, the second one for more, more than 12 million Swiss francs. Should like creating an exit always be the goal when you start a company? No, I think the goal should be to uh, uh, make to bring the product to the market, uh, to to fulfill its mission and purpose of the product. And yes, you then need to create a decent return for your investors. That's part of it, but that does not have to be an exit necessarily. It's a nice one if it turns out well, but it's not mandatory. What would be the other good alternative? The other good alternative would be to build the company and to to pay back the investors through dividends nice. uh, and returns yeah. uh, that they create. You started your first venture, um, Burn Bite Bears, already when you were still an underage teenager. It was a software engineering company and you started it in 1999. Where did this entrepreneurial spirit come from? Like, was your family background that sort of shaped you because your father was a dentist and also sort of self-employed, but not like building a big tech company? Where, where did that motivation to start a company come from? Um, it, I think it was uh, the nature of uh, the time we were in at the time. It was uh, mid-90s that we started it uh, with at the age of 16. And uh, computers became abundant, uh, but computers were still uh, new to many of the older generation at the time. And, and we, the young gen generation, adopted those technologies very rapidly and was hence able to provide value to the older generation with IT skills. And, and uh, that was very exciting because you could do it things at home uh, with very little upfront investment and were able to produce results that other people were willing to pay money for. Mm -hmm. There was no machine that you had to buy or no long-term investments that you had to make. You'd really try things out at home and if they worked, you could, you could sell them. Nice. And that was really great. So sort of the entry barriers got so small that you could even start a company as an underage teenager. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, it, it's it at the end, it's not that complicated. And uh, these were with a computer in your bedroom. That's that's all you needed to to get it started. And then network of of, of people who were like minded and who with whom you could do it together. Absolutely. Doing it alone is always uh, not the same. Who were your co-founders at Burnbite 
Spears? Uh, one was uh, a classmate of mine who brought me to the group, and the other group that was actually the core group was from another uh, school, uh, and they met at the sports competition, at an orienteering competition, and, and that's just how the people met and, and uh, discovered that they had the same eagerness to, to build and try new things, and, and that, that's how it started. I can imagine that if you're just, you know, trying things out as a teenager, you play with the technologies and so on. At what level or at what point did you then actually decide to start a company together and also get into business? Because these are still two pretty different things, right? Yeah, the, the business idea was actually triggered by my, my the friends, uh, the, the other peers in the group. Mm -hmm. uh, that had good relationships to people uh, from the healthcare industry or from IT industry, telecom industry at the time, and, and they then actually started it. And I was uh, surfing that wave, working with them and discovering that, that world. So it was clearly their, their merits to, to having started that. Cool. And what was the first product that you actually sold to, to people or was it really customized? Um, the, the first products that start, I actually don't really remember. There was a, a software program for a hospital. There were websites being programmed. There, uh, I, the big project that I did, but that was not paid for, was uh, uh, the whole IT uh, tool for my dad's uh, dentist practice, the whole patient management and, and billing and thing. That was a big one, uh, which was... Uh, required to do at the time because the tool he used was not ready for the uh, Y2K, the year 2000 issue, that good old days. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, that's um, when I offered, stepped up and said, uh, let me do that. Mm -hmm. uh, the one that ultimately allowed us to earn money was this platform to compare tariffs of phone companies um, and internet service providers and, mm -hmm. and parcel delivery services. And uh, that started because of a mandate for CompuServe at the time, a company that the young generation doesn't know anymore. No. <laughs> but what did they do? Was it a telecom it, company? It was a or? telecom company, okay. an internet service provider. Okay. Yeah. And then you sort of got a sort of a contract from them to work with them? We, we did them? a co comparison for them at, uh, for, for, uh, for uh, internet dial-ups. And uh, that is how it then started to develop into its own tool. And at the time in 98, the, uh, until I believe it was 98, uh, Swisscom was still the only player in town for uh, phones, be that mobile or landlines. Mm -hmm. And then the market uh, was, I think it was eight, 97 or 98, uh, opened up. And as part of that new competition that entered the space, there was a need for consumers to compare prices. And that is how we then started to offer those tools and also how a few months later Comparis started to offer their comparison services. One also big challenge if you start a company as an underage teenager is you actually need someone to sign your legal paperwork, right? Yeah. How did you handle this? Uh, here as well, we, we had a great uh, a person, a teacher, uh, Thomas Brennimann, who was a teacher at the Labour Matt Gymnasium, where my friends uh, Mark and Lucas Andre were. And he actually uh, discovered them, or were, they met during IT uh, classes, mm -hmm. and he then encouraged the entrepreneurial behavior and, and supported it, and was then also the president of the association. And then ultimately also was a partner in, in the company that we that we created. Nice. Yeah. You already mentioned Comparis. Uh, we will talk about the competitive story in yeah. the second episode. But you also then decided at a certain point that you sell, sell your company to Comparis. 
what were the reasons there and how did that happen? We were 20, we wanted to go to study and uh, okay. we wanted to hand that over to someone who would take care of it and you know give us a good return right. to, to so finance this part process of our studies was driven by you because you said, hey, we actually don't have the time to take care of it anymore? Or was Comparis actually also well, contacting you? No, uh, that was a, a decision that was taken by the team that we wanted okay. to, to hand it over and, and focus on our studies. Yeah. That's they, very interesting. We, we uh, were competitors uh, as, uh, for, for a few years. And uh, yeah, we then thought that they might be a good potential uh, acquirer for us, uh, willing to become the only player in Switzerland to offer those types of services mm -hmm. and yeah and how did you actually go about that because usually it can also be the other way around that they say hey we are actually interested in buying you and they get your intention to get in touch with you yeah how did you drive this process what did you that do that was very innocent at the time there we had a couple of um, we called them angels uh, business angels that all had uh, four-digit amounts of money invested, so very little. Uh, we had them in because of their experience and, and network. Mm -hmm. And in discussions with uh, some of them, we we thought that reaching out to Comparis would be a good one. And they then also supported us in that process. Okay. It was all very, very innocent at the time. <laughs> and it, was, it was different times as well for, for these types of transactions. Sure. And how did you actually come up with the price tag? What was the sort of... How did you develop the understanding that, what a fair price is? That was is? a shocking uh, thing for me because we were just on the train and discussed going into the meeting and then someone thought, oh, let's, we should maybe also have a price in mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we just, uh, there was just numbers coming up and we felt, okay, this might be too much, this might be too little, this might be approximately right, so let's just propose that. Okay, what were your sort of reference points there? Did you look at the investments you got or the revenue that you made? Uh, no, or? it was just gut feeling, okay. what, what okay. could be a fair price. And what was your number that you came up? We decided not to disclose okay. that at the time. Fair point. Yeah. And then you actually successfully sold the company and then focused on your studies. Then we had uh, a service level agreement as well with them. So we okay. supported the products for a while. And one of our employees, actually the only one who was full-time on it, the journalist, mm -hmm. he then also joined the Comparis team and was their telecom expert for, I believe, almost 15 years, uh, Ralph Baylor, and, and he was with them for a long time. And uh, yeah, so that was uh, so we we ensured that the product was continue to be uh, supported, and, sure. and and that was also one way to structure the payout a little bit. How did that feel selling your company in your early twenties, your first one? Very not normal, nothing <laughs> special. Although it's a highly extraordinary thing to happen at that young age. We uh, doesn't. I think it when when you're in it, it's it's all much more natural because it's your na it's your reality and and you're inside that. Right. And and so you don't perceive it as something special. And uh, we were agnostic enough to uh, the fact that we we knew that this was not going to be the 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 company that we wanted to spend our lives in. Sure. So separation anxiety was non-existent. Yeah. And we were just yeah. It was it felt like a natural. Uh, wrap-up of high school. Okay, yep. like uh, time for the next chapter, basically. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. that's also why, that was also the motivation to, okay. to get the transaction started. Okay. Yeah. And then later on, you co-founded your next venture, iMago. Yeah. And prior to that, you also like, you studied at uh, microengineering at the EPFL in Lausanne. Yeah. And iMago is a medical device startup yeah. that's basically visualizing blood flow in real time. Yeah. In, in what way has your 
education background also enabled you or shaped you to pursue the next entrepreneurial venture? The, the university itself um, gave me, didn't shape my entrepreneurial spirit, yeah. to be clear. But what it gave me was a good overview of a lot of different disciplines in engineering and life sciences, good enough to understand all the building blocks that are required from a technical side to put the put a product together. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is very useful when you need, then need to lead a team because you it's always about matching customer needs with regulatory boundaries, with uh, technical possibilities, and, and to shape that together and to understand that when you twist it on one end, what the implications are going to be for all the other aspects, including financials. And, and, uh, and so the studies were good because they gave me a solid technical understanding, good enough that I, I get a good sense for what is possible and what is not possible in, 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 each, in each specialty. Yeah. And then I, I need to rely on, on really good engineers to make it happen. If I'm not mistaken, there's also a link to your first venture uh, with your co-founder yeah. that followed you, right? Mark Andre, I was able to uh, get him attracted to. He, he did ETH at uh, Zurich uh, mm -hmm. Electrical Engineering, and uh, we finished more or less at the same time. And then I asked him when, again, I Mago didn't start out myself. I was not the one who, who who asked. It was the professor at the time for whom I worked after my studies for a few months who at the end of my uh, stage d'assistant asked me if I wanted, that he had patent and asked me if I wanted to build a company with him. And I, I was very intrigued by that um, and knew that I needed someone that could make it happen from a technical perspective. And that is where the, the first and only call went to Mark. And I asked him, I, he was the CTO already uh, in the previous one, asked him to, to join and, and was able to get him as part of uh, the founder team. Nice. What makes you a strong co-founder team or ask differently what it makes, uh, what, what are the important characteristics of a good co-founder team from your perspective? Um, uh, complementarity, I think, uh, that you can uh, cover as many different domains as possible that you need to be mastering to run the business. Mm -hmm. But it's not mandatory to, to manage or to have everything in-house when you start. Okay. Um, you can also attract talent later on when the time is right. And how did you go about that? Like, what was crucial from your end to have in-house at the beginning, and uh, what was less at, crucial? At Imago, the, the most crucial uh, knowledge to have in-house was really good engineering skills to okay. to make the product happen. And uh, there was a lot of electronics and software and firmware involved, and, and so the natural choice was Mark. Absolutely. Yeah. And. You know, you already have previous work experience, basically, and yeah. do you think that this is a, a huge advantage that if you already share several years of working together when you actually found a company? Yeah, it, it helps on both sides. It helps on the the trust and uh, with the with Mark specifically that I knew exactly how strong he is, mm -hmm. and that I could fully rely and delegate uh, all those aspects to him. And uh, the, the work experience in itself is also very useful or more to entrepreneurial experience because without that prior exper good experience during my high school times, mm -hmm. I probably would not have dared to build, uh, to, to lead a new company myself. I would have probably more tried to, to go and join a larger organization uh, instead of knowing that you can also do something yourself and, and that it is manageable and fun to, to do it yourself. 
And I also find it pretty interesting to talk about the way that you actually started the company because great technologies emerge from good universities every now and then. And then you can basically try to commercialize that, right? And build a business around that. How did that feel for you? Like you didn't start the company yourself or you didn't come up with the idea, let's put it that way. Also with the first uh, company with the Burn Bike yeah. Bears. How, how do you actually, you know, get into these roles or how do, can you find these opportunities? I, I never, that? I was never looking for them. Okay. They ended up in my, uh, on my desk somehow. Mm -hmm. And uh, you interestingly said all those great technologies. None of those original technologies that came out of university actually were the ones that survived into the final product. Very so interesting. It's, it's just, uh, it's just uh, the, the technology at the beginning. It's always very technology driven, but it, it just puts you on onto a uh, onto a certain track right. to to look for a for a market need. And and usually it's at the beginning. It's a strong technology push because you firmly believe now this time it's really a technology that is going to make it. Mm -hmm. But then you over the years you discover that it's actually not the right one, <laughs> and that that other technologies are actually better. But it it puts you into the thinking of really dedicating a lot of time and energy to that uh, to that potential uh, unmet need. Mm -hmm. So would you say that it's still a good idea to start with the technology and not with a problem or a market need and then finding a solution for that? I know this also depends a bit on the area that you operate your business in. Very much. I think you, you, it's a very fortunate situation if the technology is already quite close. Mm -hmm. uh, because the fact that you have technology allows you usually to get patents and having patents to get seed money at the beginning is very useful because then you can tell your investors, oh, oh it's protected, <laughs> even though you know that most likely these patents are going to be worthless after, uh, after a few years because you find another technology that is more suitable. But you need to get started somewhere. Mm -hmm. And if you just start with an unmet need, it's a whole different exercise because if you start with an unmet need, you need to do a much more... Dif uh, different approach with technology scouting and you know then you really don't know where to start and and so right. when, you, when you do technology scouting it's sometimes I, I think it's it's actually more difficult to then be able to assess which technology is going to make it for your need mm -hmm. and when you already have a starting block somewhere um, also the need can then you can focus on a slightly different variant of the need with a, a slightly different technology but then all of a sudden it makes sense so you can basically tweak it in a better way because your direction is more clear you have some you have some foundation to start with yeah but then even even the market need that uh, once you dive into it you discover that there's really different drivers that that make that are relevant once you're a few years in and so if you're just very from a very abstract point of view say oh this is a need now we need a solution i i think i i would be quite overwhelmed with that this, this is very complicated and you also mentioned the investors and that patents can actually help you closing seed money yeah although you already know that this these patents will basically not be relevant at, at in the that future. time at that time you don't know that okay yeah. But you would assume it now with your experience, probably, right? If, now you would assume that it is a likely scenario, but then again, you, you start somewhere. Yeah. And then it's uh, a lot of iterations and, and a lot of pivoting, as, we, as people call it, that, that, that leads you to the end. And, and, some, and many times along that way, you, you hit walls and sometimes you don't see them coming. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you have a sense that they might be there. Yeah. And that's just part of it. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. And still for investors, it's very important to sort of also have, you know, some guarantees or some security in the, in the investment. And the patent is very much signaling that, right? A, a patent helps because the patent helps. Why, why does it help? A patent, essentially, if granted, gives you some sort of protection that over the next 20 years, you might be able to exploit that commercial opportunity. And that is, it's much better than having nothing. Um, so, so you want to get started somewhere, even though seed investing is very risky. Uh, many, many, many of the initial seed investments don't result in, in returns. That's part of it. Still, what would you suggest or recommend to entrepreneurs that might build a software startup where you cannot get any patents, for example? Yeah, in software, I think it's much more important to have uh, good, uh, good KPIs and, and, and good traction. Okay. And, and, and make sure that you, you, you have enough momentum to, to, to become the relevant player because mm -hmm. it's so, yeah. You can talk about copyright in software as much as you want, but at the end of the day, what counts is your user base most of right. the time. Yeah. User base is one KPI. Are you thinking about other specific KPIs that people with software startups should focus on from your perspective? Um, it's obviously great if you can uh, if you can create some sort of revenue. <laughs> that always helps. Yes, that always helps. I think there's a famous quote from uh, Mark Cuban. He basically says, "Revenue cures it all, no yeah. matter what it is." That's exactly the point, and and that's also the case with with more deep tech ventures. Again, you find another need for which you then find another solution. But uh, as long as it works out, it's good. Yeah. Then in 2014, you sold the company for 12.5 million Swiss yeah. francs. We will cover how you actually got there in the second episode because this is a very also competitor-driven story. Yeah. And I would still like to, to talk about how did that actually feel? You, know, you said it wasn't too special for you when you sold your first company, but now selling a second company for 12.5 million dollars or Swiss francs, uh, which is equal at the moment, is quite a different story. Did that feel any different to you? No, I was not uh, at all. No, I was just glad that it was over. <laughs> uh, it, no, it, it didn't. Uh, the numbers become quite abstract at one point in time. Okay. Um, the no, I, I was um, I, I was happy that it was done. But then again, uh, even two months before we closed the transaction, I was already looking for a new thing. It's like an addiction. Okay. So there was also no big party that you did after the closing or anything um, like that. No, actually not. But it, again, it was it was uh, as we will discuss in the in the second episode. It was quite the hard hard fight to yes. to get there, and so people are just overall overall relieved. And uh, I, I'm the, I'm the type of guy who's then looking for a next challenge. <laughs> That's just personality. Okay. Yeah. So not really too much enjoying the moment, but already looking for the next one. Basically, I, I was glad that it took place. Yes. Um, uh, we're certainly happy that it worked out at the end, mm -hmm. um, but again, it's it's not like uh, yeah, it's not like uh, uh, at that point at least it was not there was no desire for for a huge celebration. It was just good that we we got everyone everyone uh, some sort of return, sure. and uh, everyone was happy. And uh, I was focusing on convincing those investors who earned money with Imago that they. We're keeping the, the money that they earned earmarked for the next venture. Good story. Yeah. What did you actually personally do with the money that you made? I put all, all in the new one. <laughs> pretty hardcore. No surprise after that story, I it's guess. Pretty hardcore. Yeah. 
before you actually started the next one then, or joined the next yeah. one, better said, you also worked at the acquiring company at Novadac for almost one and a half years. I, yeah, that okay. was essentially just uh, on paper. I was okay. just an uh, employee, I got a salary, but I, I worked maybe 30 hours over that one year. Okay. So that was just part of the deal. Usually okay. when you when you structure such a transaction, the yeah. acquirer wants the know-how of key people to be sure. staying on board. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is that was what I signed up for. And uh, I was then focusing my efforts on transferring knowledge to them. Uh, and it, there, w- there wasn't so much that there was that, that needed to be transferred. Okay. So you basically didn't really have an operation role no, anymore. I actually didn't want that. I can imagine. I, uh, yeah. I, I didn't. I wanted to do something else. Yeah. And again, they they are where our competitors at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I uh, I was good with without uh, working <laughs> for them too much. Um, just out of curiosity, I don't know if you are able or willing to share uh, other numbers there, or just give us a hint. But I would also be interested in how these deals actually look like when you then start working for the company that buys your company. Are these like market salaries? Is it higher? Is it lower? Um, it's it's market salary. Okay. Yeah, but typically um, you can you can get a good package or part of a, a of a normal trade sale is that you can then also negotiate a relatively good package to stay on mm-hmm. here because we force them to buy us. There was a bit less empathy on their side to give me a good package, <laughs> which has also then resulted in me looking for other things. So that's, uh, but okay. there, we will we'll cover that later on. Yeah, but yeah, I think that will be a nice story to hear. Then, as you already mentioned, you were looking for the next thing. So you also joined a company called Distal Motion yeah. that you actually joined first as an investor and then later on as CEO with an operational involvement. Um, there, I met Distal Motion in, in March 14 two months before the closing. Uh, uh, the reason why I met them is I was invited to join the jury for Venture Leaders Boston at the time. And I really liked that. And then I went to Reto Hartman, my coach, uh, CTI coach uh, at the time, and told him, so which one of those 20 companies that are going to Boston should I join? Mm-hmm. And then he said, oh, well, I have another one that you would like more. And he then introduced me to this motion that he was coaching as well at the time. And I knew they were looking for, they told me that they were looking for money. So, so I said, yeah, I'll bring you the, my money and mm-hmm. bring you the money of my investors under the condition that I have a board seat and become CEO. Okay. And that was then, we, we discussed that for a few months uh, and mm-hmm. then they accepted and we invested. And uh, yeah, let the second financing round put in like three and a half million or so. Um, and uh, me took taking over the board seat and the CEO role as part of that package. So for you, it was very important to also be invested, not only operationally involved, but also invested with a potential upside, I guess. Uh, I was not looking for a job. I was looking for something more. Uh, yeah. And what was especially appealing to you when you looked at Distal Motion? The, the, the competitive landscape that it was in uh, or is in still um, is not that far away from, from what we had at IMAGO, mm-hmm. similar companies. And the, the logic there as well to uh, go into, an, with IMAGO, we actually started a market from scratch, which mm-hmm. was very difficult because you have to educate your surgeons and nurses and payers 
about the value of the product that you that you want to bring to market and, and do a lot of clinical work, market development that is extremely costly. And in uh, that was one of the reasons why we then had to sell Imago because that would have required much too much money to, to do that ourselves. At, in in Tesla Motion or in the robotic surgery world, the, the market is different. There is already one player out that is hugely successful, Intuitive Surgical, with by now three and a half billion in sales in the 54 billion market cap, just from those robots. And we, we knew that we had a better solution for that, but that we, there was no need to educate surgeons or hospital administrators about the fundamental value of robotics. The only thing that needed to be explained was why we are different and why we are better. And, and so that is a much easier sale and requires much less market education than if you start in a market from scratch. And because I knew that space already and I really liked that uh, competitive play, um, I felt that this was a very intriguing place to go in. And it's a big market, it's growing strongly, big players want to move in, so there's a good, good dynamics that can be played. And I guess there were also other characteristics that were important to you, like team, for example. I, yeah, I like the team. Um, but that was not my primary rationale to go in at the time. It was it at least was a market really opportunity that yeah, you yeah, saw. Yeah, it was more, again, more from a, from an investor perspective. Felt, and that is also why I wanted to have the CEO role, because I, I wanted to, to shape the evolution of the company. Very nice. The, the team is, is it was a, was a good team at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did, a, I'm very grateful for their, um, for what they did, um, that they had this idea and the courage to start and to, to succeed in the first financing round. Yes. Um, that, that is always a easily underestimated uh, achievement and, and a really good job. Uh, we then later on uh, decided to buy them out, um, which is fine as well. Uh, but uh, so without there, again, without them, I would not have had the opportunity to be in that space. So, But this can also be a very tricky decision I can imagine and also execution on top of it if you actually want to buy out existing an existing team or existing management team or founding team. Yes and you only do that if there is a need um, because it requires it absorbs a lot of energy mm-hmm. and you need to find money to pay for them. Right. Usually when you have new money coming in new investors want to um, invest their money into the into growing value Absolutely. and it's sometimes it's obviously very hard to explain why they should pay other shareholders to leave because then they're already in a, in a situation where they say well wait there there is a problem here so why should I bring money for that and gra- gra- gratefully or fortunately we had a, an existing investor who, who understood that he's a very successful entrepreneur himself mm-hmm. who then uh, understood the need and stepped up and, and offered money and that is how we could then offer uh, the, the main founder there who had almost 90% of the founder shares uh, a buyout and, yeah. and that allowed for, uh, for a, a nice uh, separation. He can do what he's really good at and we can, we can develop the, and shape the slow motion the way we want to shape it. I mean, this is also, you hear that quote all the time that, you know, certain founders also sort of grow out of their role depending on the stage that the startup is in. But I, I can imagine in practice, this is not too easy to, to realize or to then actually also make the necessary changes. How did you find out that this was the necessary step to take? Again, I, I don't like the, the notion of growing out of their role. Uh, I think people have 
unique capabilities. But when you when you build a business, so, so a typical tech founder, they start with a PhD, so a very academic track, mm-hmm. and they need to then pivot through all the other stages of seed founder, building up a company with three people, then growing it, growing it, becoming a real business, getting real money in, going to market, doing, and that is a huge change of direction. And sometimes people that are really geniuses in in their inventor world, that is so needed for us to build companies, they they, they are best placed there Mm -hmm. and they should stay there. And, and, And it takes time. A separation always involves two parties. It all, that's the nature of a separation. It takes time for both parties to realize that and to then find a solution that is that is good for both of them. And, and the way we did that is we um, one of the another entrepreneur uh, about the, uh, the same age as I am, also from Lausanne. He's a, a small investor in this motion. He then he knew both the founder and me very well and he then suggested the mediation process and that then ultimately led to the separation. Do you think that this is something other companies should also consider when they go through a similar experience? The the thing is you can consider it as much as you want. The most important ingredient is that you find some money to pay the founder. And in most cases unfortunately there is no money available to do such a buyout. Um, but if if there is a way to find that money, it's definitely a, a worthwhile discussion to have. Okay. But it doesn't make sense to have the discussion first and then mentally you're already separated, yeah. but you have still no money to to buy the other party out. I, I guess like these discussions could also end in the closer of a, of a business. Oh yeah, that, like that. that happens or or that people need to leave. Uh, are still shareholders and then in every financing round every time you need to update the agreements you need to have a fight with them um, but that is that that is a lot that is where you waste a lot of energy both as a, a founder who leaves because again emotionally you can't move on and as a company because you're always uh, held hostage by uh, yeah by someone who is not happy and uh, yeah. I think I also heard companies where it was slightly different. They realized that they were in such a situation and just realized, hey, we need to change something in order to make it work uh, better. But then um, the leading founder was still at least partly or even fully um, participating on the shares of the company. Yeah. Was that also a discussion point from you? Because you seem to be very clear that either you are fully in it or you don't have any shares at all. No, I'm. I'm. Uh, every every situation is different. Uh, here we had the, the fortunate uh, um, the situation that we had an existing investor who put in the money. That makes things just cleaner. The next best alternative would have been to to separate ourselves from him on an employment level, but still have his shares. But th- this would have been hugely painful, and I think then it, it becomes a very uh, individual. Um, discussion and every every founder is different as well sure. so for some people it, it's easier to let go others have more affection to their invention mm-hmm. so you I don't think that there is a, a universal uh, rule okay. but what I think what is universal uh, is that you want to make sure that as a company whatever the size it is uh, everyone pulls in the same direction sure yeah. that is very important yeah 
And when you have people fighting against you, or when you have infighting, that can that can break the neck of of, of any business. Yeah, it's also a huge distraction. Huge, yeah, yeah. and that, because it it's not low ranking employees who who handle that. It's the management and the board, and they should be doing different things. Yeah, and I mean building a company is even hard enough, but then. You, if you all pull together in the same direction, that's even hard enough then. Yeah. But then if you also yeah. have internal disagreements and so on, then it gets even more difficult. So in the meantime, we have bought out two other investors or one seed okay. investor and one series A investor with whom we were not on the on the same page and we, we bought back their shares and, and they're out. And, and that's very important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What I also find interesting is over and over again, you got interesting deals or interesting opportunities on your table. Mainly, if I understood that correctly, through your network or people that you knew from university, investors, other people from the startup ecosystem, did you do anything special to sort of build a strong network or relationship with other people? Or is that something that you didn't pay attention to at all? I uh, know it was not something I did consciously. Okay. Uh, it, it somehow happened either through my, I don't know if it's my personality, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm not the one who goes to hundreds of networking events and, and tries to have a, 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 manage, a, a huge, huge and actively managed uh, business network. That's not my type. Okay. Uh, and that is, yeah, where, where all the ingredients come into play, including luck. Sure. Yeah. And where did then the contacts actually emerge from, just from events that you might still have seen each other or when you were... So, so the um, the first one with Burn by Bears that started in eighth grade at the school orienteering event where I uh, met someone uh, who was uh, one became one of the co classmates and co-founders of Burn by Bears and he met the others from Le Vermont also at an orienteering event so just just that's just coincidence and or maybe not coincidence, maybe it's shared interests, more, more importantly. So we were all into, into IT at the time. Mm -hmm. And that is how you connect. And, and that is when you then meet with people, who, other people who wanted to do things in, in IT or did things sure. in IT, and then it created a certain dynamics. And then um, the Martin Lucas, Andre, they had, from the very get-go, they had huge professionalism also from a business perspective and they were the ones who then led it and, and we were just surfing along and uh, learning from them Great. and after my uh, studies to start imago um, i actually during my studies i was leading a team to build a, a solar powered race uh, car which didn't work out because we didn't get the money for many reasons and uh, the project stopped uh, maybe two months before I handed in my master's thesis and uh, we had like 20 or so people working on it so it was relatively large so I said okay let's just finish my thesis and then I didn't know what to do so I, I was uh, offering to a friend of mine who did a PhD at EPFL to do some programming for him because I felt the way he was doing his his programs or image acquisition for his research was not efficient and, and that is how I went there and worked for him as a summer job mm -hmm. and then it's through that work that I, I met with that professor who was the head of that uh, lab and, and then we got to know each other and, and at the end when I wanted to leave uh, he, uh, he offered that to me. Great, so 
be open to opportunities, try things out. Yeah, and just then... try and go. And, and uh, it, it always involved uh, reflecting on it a bit. It always involved me trying things and then meeting other people who try things. And, and then it's a bit of a randomness involved. Yeah, and then you suddenly end up at the right place at the right time, right? Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> somehow how it worked out so far. Cool. Yeah. Before we end up and wrap up this episode, I have uh, two more questions for you. Sure. Are there any favorite tools or gadgets that you use yourself on a regular basis? Uh, my mobile phone. Sure. Classic. <laughs> I uh, I learned that for after maybe twenty years, I concluded that I that tools are less important than just getting things done. Yeah. And uh, so I stopped looking for great tools and great uh, project management tools or great whatever. Uh, it's just it, because you can waste so much time yeah. in tools. And the work doesn't get doesn't, done. It doesn't get done either. So just uh, I try to be focusing more on having less emails in my backlog and, and less work that is not done because I'm looking for tools to make them more efficient. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, last question for today. Um, are there any additional resources like books, blogs, podcasts, or so on that you yourself listen to on a regular basis or consume on a regular basis that you can recommend to others? I'm actually the full opposite of these types of people. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm a very easily distracted uh, when it comes to reading these types of books or blogs. I, I read uh, uh, newspapers a lot to know what is going on in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's about it. Okay. There are other people that are much more out there looking for great books and uh, the, the only the only way I probably read books is uh, through these get abstract summaries because that's about the attention span I have. <laughs> and also sounds way more efficient. <laughs> it is and because uh, at the end of the day it's it's all about good it's all about daring to ask mm -hmm. the very basic questions. It's a very basic reasonable instincts that that make you successful. It's like daring to ask, so does that product really work? Or who will really want to pay for that? Mm -hmm. It's these things that when you are too academic, you don't dare to ask because it feels like it's a too easy question. You need to sound more intelligent. But what I've learned from, from also my, my investors that are successful entrepreneurs is to focus on the basics, but to really understand them and, and not hide behind any sort of theories or models or whatever. Because at the end of the day, you always need to have someone who is willing to put money on the table for something. Right. And, Sounds and that, pretty simple. That, that's it. That's it. And you need to understand that mm -hmm. very basic relationship. I think keep it simple. That's a very point to end this episode. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time, Michael. And it was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the content, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts because we would highly appreciate that to also spread the word about our podcast and show. Next week, we will already be back with a new episode with Michael Friedrich where we talk about competition. Competition is a very delicate subject and also very important in the startup world. Michael has loads of experience how to handle uh, competition and how to actually also beat them. 
there will be stories that you can just not believe where Michael and his companies basically fight against the biggest players in their networks, in their areas, in their markets, and actually also won against them. How you can apply this knowledge and also successfully play, as I would call it, chess in the real startup world, this is exactly what you will learn in an all-new episode of Swisspreneur next week.